0: We are currently going through uh, a series called 12 Handpicked Men, and it has us focused in Mark chapter 3. So I want to go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And while you're turning there, I thought it'd be good to share a few reasons why I believe it's important and beneficial for us to take a closer look at the lives of these men, formerly known as the 12 Apostles. In previous sermons, we've revealed some of the purpose as to why these men, despite just being ordinary guys, were used so significantly by the Lord. One reason was practical in nature. We've made progress in the Gospel of Mark and we've seen that this massive crowd is beginning to follow the Lord Jesus Christ as he is preaching the Gospel, as he is healing many, as he's casting out demons. And the crowd, as we go to our next Uh, passage is going to it's growing to such an extent that the disciples can't even sit down to eat a meal. In fact, there's a genuine concern about the Lord's safety. And so Jesus um, is going to formally uh, lean on these men to uh, appoint 12 so that they can preach and have his authority to share in, in the ministry and to cast out demons. The second reason Why these men are so significant is because the Lord is discipling them because they'll become future disciple makers. The Great Commission is going to start with these guys. And so Christ is investing in their lives in a very practical way. He's allowing them to see who he is and how he ministers to people because they are going to go ahead and follow his footsteps. All of these men, with the exception of one, will go on to disciple others. And we're actually included among those who will be discipled by them. How so, you ask? A few of these guys are going to go ahead and, and record the New Testament scriptures. Some of the New Testament scriptures, of course, superintended by the power of the Holy Spirit. And without their writings, we would know very little about the Lord Jesus Christ. A third reason why these men are significant and worthy of our study We've mentioned is for eschatological reasons. In the millennial kingdom, the 12 are actually going to sit on thrones and they're going to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to have an opportunity during the millennial kingdom to rule and reign with Christ from 12 thrones, and that's shared in Luke 22 30. We also learned that. Their, their names are going to be forever embedded, right, into the memorial stones in the foundation of the new Jerusalem that we'll see for all eternity. Scripture also reveals that their lives were given with Christ to lay a foundation for the New Testament church, as is explained in Ephesians 2.19. And it was this, uh, with this verse in mind that in last week's sermon introduction, I feature, featured the significance of their foundation and a principle of application that we ended our time with, that had us focusing on the foundation of our lives and looking at if we're truly building our lives on the foundation and the testimony of Christ and the apostles. And is it the foundation not only of our lives, but the foundation of our families, the, the, the foundation of our friendships? Again, there are no commands in this passage for us, but as our sermon proposition continues to indicate, we want to consider what principles we can learn as Jesus personally called, discipled, commissioned, and identified these 12 men. Is your life and mine being built upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles as it relates to your call, your discipleship, your commission, is my proximity to Christ impacting my life in such a way that my ministry mindset and my walk with the Lord is being strengthened? Or is it potentially being compromised because of what I'm building my life on? How can looking at the testimonies of these 12 handpicked men stir our hearts to? live out a life of greater faith and to have more passion and concern for Christ and for others. Which of these men will you be able to identify with the most as you continue to pursue Christ and pursue Christ's likeness Let's tackle the text again together and continue our study in Mark chapter 3 and I'm going to read verses 13 and 19 for, excuse me, for us. And Jesus... He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he would send them out to preach, and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As you look at your outline in the notes, we have already covered the first three points of that outline, and we're currently working our way down the list of the twelve uh, eventually apostles, that starts in verse 16. And we've covered the first five men already. And perhaps you've noticed, but perhaps not, that we're following a similar progression as we look at these men. First, we're looking at their names, and then we're looking at when they were called by the Lord. Then we're looking at their, their weaknesses, and then we're looking at how the Lord discipled them. And spiritually grew them, and lastly, we have the opportunity to look at their deaths, excuse me their deaths and so, in the previous sermons, um, i haven 't included that framework in the outline, but I wanted you to be able to track our progression with the three men that we 'll cover today and Though that outline isn't pulled from the text, it's what we call an artificial outline. It allows us to just have some little points to hang our hats on to see with greater clarity. Our sixth name on our list comes in verse 18, and it is Bartholomew. Bartholomew is mentioned in all the New Testament lists of the apostles. In the Gospel of John, he is always called Nathaniel. And Bartholomew is a Hebrew surname, meaning son of Tolmai. His given name, Nathaniel, ironically means God has given. And for the sake of consistency, I'm going to go ahead and call him Nathaniel. And besides, I know a lot more Nathans and Nathaniels. And I don't know any Bartholomews. And um, if I were going to have another son, we've got another daughter on the way next month, I would probably lean towards Nathaniel instead of Bartholomew. But if you're a Bart here with us today, just know you're welcome. We're, we're, we're glad you're here, okay? you might be able to persuade me just a little bit. Neither the Synoptic Gospels nor the Book of Acts provide any details about him. So the little that we do know comes from the Gospel of John and extra-biblical resources. And as we learned last Sunday in our study of Philip, he and Nathaniel were very good friends. And it was Nathaniel who was brought to Christ by Philip. In John one forty five, and I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there to John one forty five. you may recall what Philip said to Nathanael. It reads, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Both of these men had a strong interest in the scriptures. And they appear to have been looking out for the Messiah. Perhaps since they were such good friends, maybe they made that 30-mile trek out into the wilderness to go hear John the Baptist, who was preaching about the coming Messiah. It does seem apparent that when Philip shared with Nathanael about the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, that this piqued Nathanael's interest. As one theologian notes, it appears that all of the apostles, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, were to some degree seekers after divine truth before they met Jesus. They were already being drawn by the Spirit of God. Their hearts were open to truth and hungry to know it. They were sincere in their love for God and their desire to know truth and receive the Messiah. In that sense, they were very different from the religious establishment, which was dominated by hypocrisy and false piety. End quote. And we've seen this stark... Contrast develop as the Lord continues to interact and confront the self-righteous and religious hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees in the opening chapters of Mark. Yet, as we have seen in our previous study of the first five of these men, these three that we'll discuss today also had their weaknesses. They lacked faith. They were oftentimes filled with doubt. They, they feared what men, what other people thought of them. They had prejudices that they needed to overcome. And it was no different with Nathanael. When Philip initially shared the news about Christ with Nathanael, he said in John one forty five, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So for two men who have been diligently pursuing the scriptures... And all of a sudden, one of them says to the other one, we have found, found him. You would think that Nathaniel's response is, his response is going to be like, oh, wow, that is amazing. Take me to him. I want to meet him. I want to meet him right away. But in verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? His response was filled with prejudice. And just like James and John, who had their own bias and prejudice towards uh, those from Samaria, Nathaniel had his own prejudice with those who were from Nazareth. And scripture doesn't offer us any insight into why he held this negative view. Perhaps there was civil unrest between the town that he grew up in. And with, with Nazareth, or perhaps there was this certain stigma that only the culture during that time was aware of about those from Nazareth. And we see that in, in, our, in our modern uh, culture, right? When, when, you know, there's certain parts of maybe a city or certain parts, right, that, that maybe are frowned upon because of a high crime rate or um, what, whatever the situation might be, right? We're familiar with that. Maybe that was the case For Nathanael. We simply don't know. What you may find interesting. Is what Jesus said to Nathanael. In verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. And said of him. Behold an Israelite indeed. In whom there is no deceit. This hardly appears as a description. Of someone who seems prejudiced right. And though some might disagree with me. I believe that the Lord's response. Is filled with both hope. And with a little sarcasm. He knows what's in the hearts of men. He, he can see directly into Nathanael's heart. He knows what's in him. He knows that sinful bent, that temptation to look down upon other people. Jesus saw both Nathaniel's genuine desire to search the scriptures and to seek out the Messiah... Yet our Lord is also aware of his sin and prejudice that will need to be addressed in time. I think Nathaniel recognizes that Jesus saw him at face value, and just listen to his response in verse forty-eight. Nathaniel said to him, "This is so intriguing. How do you know me?" Jesus answered and said to him, "Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you." And Nathaniel answered him. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, "Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these." And we're not given much detail about what occurred, or even what Nathaniel was doing at that point in time. He could have, right? He could have been continuing to pour over the scriptures and saying, "God, I want to. I want to know who the Messiah is. I want to." to 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 see you i want to i want to know who it is would have been the lord would have been blessed by that and if he would have said i made that connection or on on the flip side of that maybe it was a time where he was caught up indulging the lusts of the mind maybe he was engaged in sin we don't know and maybe all of a sudden he feels the weight of that and the shame. And it's just like, there was nobody else around when I was by myself. But he knows. He knows. You are the Messiah. You are the king of Israel is his response. And what principle of application can we draw from our Lord's interaction with Nathaniel? Jesus sees your heart. He sees directly into my heart. He knows all of our prejudices. He knows the lusts of pride in our heart. He knows the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Yet just like with Nathaniel, our Lord knows where we are going and with His help, how we will be growing. It is not about who Nathanael was when he was first called, but what he would become in Christ. Our Lord views us the same way. He grows us forward and helps us to become more like him. And yes, positionally, we're already perfect in Christ, but practically we're growing in our sanctification and our spiritual maturation. What would become of Nathanael? He would go on to minister in Laconia, then in Syria and the upper parts of Asia and afterwards in India where he taught Indians in their native tongue. He ministered finishing in greater Armenia and it is said that he established faith in Christ in 12 cities in that country. While in the capital city, he witnessed to the king's brother whose wife and three children were converted to Christ. When the priests of the false deities heard of this, they brought Nathanael before the king, and the king actually threatened Nathanael and told him that if he did not desist from preaching Christ and if he would not sacrifice to the other deities, that he was going to be put to death. He ordered Nathanael to stop his ministry. And when Nathanael replied to the king he claimed that he had not perverted the king's brother with other gods, but converted him through preaching the true God. He said he would rather seal his testimony with his own blood than suffer the least shipwreck of his faith or conscience. Those that were with us uh, last Sunday, you know that I provided pictures of what happened when they were, when. The, the apostle, was martyred. The king ordered that Nathaniel be tortured, beaten with rods, suspended invertedly on a cross, and while he was still living, filleted with a knife, that all of his kid's skin would be cut off. And there are some artists that have depicted this and I didn't feel that it was necessary to provide a picture of that for you. I think that we can all understand what a violent and cruel death that would have been. And though we often hear stories, horrific stories, of Christians being beheaded by ISIS and terrorist organizations, let me just say that in many of those situations, they're, they're G-rated, compared to what was taking place in the opening centuries and the continued centuries with with those who were martyred for Christ. And there's a book actually called Martyrs Mirror, and I'll read the subtitle, The Story of 17th Centuries of Christian Martyrdom from the Time of Christ to A.D. 1660. And you want to read the, the, the cost of faith. And this is my copy of this book. I'm actually going to put it out over at our Disciples for Life resource table. If you want to Go ahead and just take an opportunity, but just thousands of names in here of people who lived for Christ, who gave everything, who laid their lives down. And I'm sure that you're humbled just as I am by such a testimony. And what a stark contrast when we considered the convenient Christianity that surrounds us in our culture. It's so prevalent in the church and in our cultural mindset. It benefits us to see how these men laid down their lives in sacrificial service. It also puts our own challenges into perspective when we think that our, our Christian lives somehow demand too much. And the problem, I believe, is that we so oftentimes have our thinking backwards as believers. We forget that our faith doesn't cost something. It doesn't just cost something, but it costs us everything. And we're reminded of that in the scriptures. You know, earlier this summer as I was preparing to go to the Czech Republic and I was going on a missions team, I was actually just thinking about just how much effort this was actually taking to prepare to be gone two weeks for my family, to get all these things in order, all the preparation that was going into it. I mean, I was just, whoa, is me. I mean, whoa, it's so hard. So I, I thought that. And then I see an example of this. These men spent their entire lives on a missions trip. They traveled from country to country. They would have done anything to have an opportunity to step into a jet, to sit in coach, and to fly over to another country in a trip that was going to take a matter of just a couple of hours or a few hours instead of a few days or in some instances, a few weeks to actually get there. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have Google Chat. They couldn't stay in touch with their families or check in at night, even though the time zones are different, try to line up and have a conversation. And in some instances, like here with Nathaniel, They never came back alive. Nathaniel never came back from Armenia. And we want convenient Christianity, don't we? I mean, wouldn't it be ideal if the church was in our neighborhood? That we didn't have to drive 20 or 30 minutes, some of you 40 plus minutes to get to the church? And I'm not discounting that, but I think that there's sometimes in our hearts we, 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 we think, oh, we have this view of Christianity that somehow if, if the church was in our neighborhood and maybe if all that ministry required was conveniently mapped out around the schedule of my kids' sports practices and the other commitments and the other obligations that I have. And somehow the ministry meeting could take place on this specific night because it accommodates my schedule. Yet, we have it backwards. We, we do. And, I, and I'm preaching to my own heart. I had to wrestle with this sermon. I have it backwards. I have it backwards sometimes where I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, we, we get all these other things in place. And then we see how ministry pieces can fit into that equation. Don't we do that? Do we do that? Yes or no? I, and I don't mind just standing up here preaching to my own heart. But I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not alone. And we get all these other things in place, and then we calculate well, how much time? Then what do I have left over to give? Are you convicted yet? We should be. We should be. Yet it's so refreshing and encouraging to study the lives of men who forsook the world so that they could have maximum kingdom impact because their lives were centered on Christ. And the seventh name on our list is also in verse 18, and it's a man who had to forsake a very lucrative career, and it is Matthew Levi. Matthew's name means gift of God. And he appears in all the lists of the apostles, and he's either called Matthew or Levi. In Matthew 10.3, and Matthew was written by Matthew, he refers to himself as the tax collector. In Matthew 9.9, 9, Matthew describes himself as sitting at a tax booth when Jesus called him. In Mark 2.14, which we've previously studied, um, it tells us that he was known as the son of Alphaeus. His calling is described for us in Luke chapter 5 and Mark chapter 2, which, again, we previously studied. And immediately, if you'll recall our study, after Matthew's call, what did he do? Remember, he threw that reception for Christ, invited him to come back, and he had a farewell party. He had a farewell party. He wanted not only those who were in the tax-collecting business to come to his house so that they could have an opportunity to meet Christ, to hear the gospel proclaimed. But it was also a farewell party to who? To himself. Maybe we needed to have that custom more for those who have, have faith, right? Like in the Russian culture, where they, um, they, they say, I repented. You know, not, not, not I believe, but I repented, I turned. Right? When they come to, to faith, maybe we need to have repentance parties and, 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 and say goodbye to our life from before as we knew it, to, to wave farewell. And that's exactly what Matthew Levi did when he hosted this party. He gives this big reception. Jesus is in the house, there was this great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him and the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling to his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And when we covered Levi's call in Mark 2, we spent a significant portion of the time explaining why tax collectors were the most despised people on the planet in the ancient Near East. Tax collectors worked with and for Rome. And Rome, of course, ruled and oppressed the Jewish people. And Jewish tax collectors would actually buy a franchise from Rome and make their money by taking more taxes from the Jewish people than Rome required. So they would get their cut. So basically what it boils down to, how they made their living, they made it by extorting their own countrymen. And then they would go ahead and hire thugs, these you know, these people who would, if they refused to pay when they would come to a tax booth or they would be on a journey, they had, their, they had their boys with them, intimidating people, people trained to go ahead and get their money. If you recall, when we went through it, we talked about them being like the people who are in the tow business, right? The, the company, like they extort you for towing your car, exorbitant amount of money, And you know what's interesting? Even Jesus recognized the contempt of their practices when he lumps tax collectors with harlots in Matthew 21, 31. In Matthew 18, 17, Jesus lumps tax collectors with pagans. In Matthew 9, 10, and 11, tax collectors are lumped together with sinners. And in Matthew 5, 46, Jesus is teaching on loving our enemies, and he explains that nothing is special to love those who, uh, nothing special about loving those who love you. Even tax collectors do the same. And he takes the most despised group of sinners in society and says, even reprobate tax collectors will love other reprobate tax collectors. Point being, it was no big deal to love those who love you. Even the greatest of sinners already do that. In Luke 7.34, Jesus describes the attitude of the Jewish leaders Towards him, saying they accused him of being a friend of who? Tax collectors and sinners, right? And being a friend of a tax collector, having any acquaintance, nobody, no Jew was ever going to go to their house, and the Lord Jesus Christ goes to this reception at one of their homes is just absolutely unheard of. It was like intentionally touching a leper, as we talked about it before. And Jesus goes in and he sits. He dines with them, and he's preaching the gospel to them. It was tantamount to committing treason. If you were a friend of tax collectors, and yet Jesus calls who? He called Matthew Levi, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples, who would eventually go on to become an apostle. And as we can imagine, Matthew's life would have been plagued with a, a sinful residue from his path past. I mean, they had the lap of luxury. They had a lot of money when they collected those taxes. They could buy the things of this world. They could afford the the pleasures and, and the things that this world offered. But Matthew realized what Jesus taught was true. And little did he know that the Holy Spirit was going to guide him and actually later on record him and say, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? It forfeits his soul. Matthew was going to write those words if he loses his soul. And 1 Timothy 6.10 reminds us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And so Matthew forsook his unfulfilling love for money and the passing pleasures of this world and he exchanged it for the love of Christ and the eternal treasures that come with it. And the principle that we need to be reminded of regularly is that there's a cost associated with being a disciple of Christ. Many are confused about this, and so it's good to clarify. Yes, Jesus paid the price for your salvation and for your righteousness, and there's nothing that you can do meritoriously that will ever add to that righteousness. Our salvation is purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We're going to have an opportunity at the beginning of second hour to celebrate that reality as we, we have communion together as a church family. Only Jesus can and will forgive your sins if you cry out to him in faith and repentance. And he will give you his perfect and eternal righteousness that can never be merited. Yet. Yet. There is an ongoing cost of discipleship on this side of the cross that involves us practically dying to ourselves daily. And Francis, Francis you preached on this uh, back in May from Matthew 10. And it's not a popular message even in Christian circles today, but one we need to hear and be reminded of regularly And Jesus says, you must be willing to give up and forsake your closest relationships on earth for the sake of following him. You must be willing to die to yourself, your old desires, your old ways. Jesus says, you must follow him. The Lord says, if you're not willing to give up all your possessions and relationships, that you are not ready to be a Christian And though God doesn't call us all to give up the same things, he does call us all to have a complete willingness to give up anything and everything if he should ask. Why does he do that? Think about that just practically for a moment. Why does he do that? It's because he realized that our love for the things of this world, they they contain cords. And when they get wrapped around your heart, they are going to entangle your walk spiritually. They are going to restrict the spiritual blood flow of your heart. They are going to compromise your love for the Lord. And the realness that you can have as you draw near to him. And that's why he even says that man cannot serve both God and money. He wants us to cut the cords of worldly affections that will impede or compromise our relationship with him. I want you to imagine for a moment that you serve in our U.S. military. I was convicted as I was even thinking about this illustration that... We really don't pray for our U.S. military enough. In fact, with Top Sunday coming up, maybe, James, we can add them to our list that we would spend some time praying for the Christian brothers and sisters who are serving in our military and and for their faithfulness in ministry and those who are so close to death walking next to those who might be dying. But I want you to imagine that you're going to go out on a deployment for for a year. And you're going to be gone from your family. Okay? You're, you're, You're heading out. And after several months of your deployment, and for some of us it might even start within several weeks, you're already longing to be reunited with your family. You miss them. You can't wait for your deployment to come to an end. You simply want nothing else except to spend time with them. And finally the day comes. The term is up And you get to take the flight home back to the airport, or if you're serving in the Navy, then you're coming in and on the ship. And your family is waiting at the port, or they're waiting at the airport. And all of a sudden, when you get off the plane, or you get off the boat, there's a car salesman there. And the car salesman's letting you know that they have one of your favorite cars in stock, and that they're going really fast and the car is actually right there and he's opening up the car door and he's saying, I want you to, to take a test drive right now and you can get an amazing deal on this car. I want you to take a ride with me right now. What would you do? What would you do? Would we get in that car and, and go for a ride and a test drive in that moment? You know what? There are some that are in such broken relationships in their family, they might contemplate that. But those of us who have genuine love and a genuine relationship, tell me this, there is nothing that somebody could bring and put in your path in this world that would keep you from going to spend time with your family, right? Absolutely nothing. But let me tell you this, when it comes to the Lord, we do this all the time. We do it all the time. We allow the things of this world to entertain our hearts and to attract us and to take our time and take our affections away from him. We do. And we compromise. We compromise. We compromise. And we fail to realize that true freedom is found in our calling of self denial. If we are not mindful of our calling, we will soon have the cords of materialism and convenience entangled around our hearts, choking off our spiritual circulation. It's true. It's true, the freedom is right there in our self-denial. And you know what's absolutely staggering is that the love that he has for us, and you know some of us have family, families that we love and families that love us, are, 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 we're so close. I was actually thinking about this. I, I love putting Liam down at night. It's so much fun. We sing Amazing Grace to our kids at night before we put them down and Liam's starting to try to sing Amazing Grace along. It's it's precious. You know, I was holding him and I was just praising God for the stewardship because I know he's not ours. I know he belongs to the Lord and just what a gift, what a little treasure he is. And I was thinking about how much I love him. And I do. And I know you love your kids as well. But it doesn't even come close, does it? It's just a fraction. It's just a microcosm of His love for us, of God's love for us. He loves you. Do you believe that? He loves you. He wants time with you. He wants your fellowship, He wants your love. He wants our fellowship and longs for our love. And so the question that you and I have to answer, are we going to allow anything in this world to get in in the way of that? Are we? Are we? Matthew zealously loved and followed the Lord, and after he had been fully instructed by Christ, the Lord commissioned him as an apostle. He was sent to Ethiopia where he would faithfully preach Christ until his death. History states that immediately after the death of the Ethiopian king Aglopus, who was attached to Christians, his successor, Hydechus, an unbelieving king, persecuted Matthew and eventually had him apprehended. King Hydacus had Matthew's hands and feet nailed to the ground before having him beheaded in Nadavar, the capital of Ethiopia. Again, no picture needed. I think we get that. We get what that looked like. And this is how the seventh name on our list was laid to rest. Finally, we come to our eighth name on our list, and it's Thomas, who is also mentioned in verse 18. Thomas appears in the lists of the apostles, but John refers to him as Didymus. And the name Thomas means twin, and Didymus is the Greek word for twin. As it relates to his calling from the Lord, we simply know that Thomas's name is included in the list. We don't have any details of his calling. And only John's gospel mentions him more than once, where it appears three times. And Thomas, like the other men, had his weaknesses. Thomas was filled with doubt and pessimism. And his most notable example of this comes in a very familiar passage in John chapter 20. And I want to invite you to turn there to John 20. And it's late in the ministry of Jesus And it actually takes place after he's risen from the dead and appeared to the apostles. And starting in verse 24 of chapter 20, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared. And it says this, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the, of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put, on, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas was a classic empiricist. An empiricist is somebody who will only believe that which they can experience through their senses, their physical senses. And Thomas refused to believe the other disciples and the women who saw Jesus alive after being crucified. You can imagine how stubborn Thomas must have been because it says that he went eight days in his unbelief, refusing. And of course he was around the the apostles. He was around the other people who had already saw him. It was all they could talk about. We can't believe it. We can't believe it. And here's Thomas. Here's doubting Thomas. Eight days. Unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. One pastor shared, Thomas must have been born and raised in Missouri, the show me state. (laughs) Because he insisted on seeing Christ resurrected before he would believe. And this earned him the nickname Doubting Thomas, which is a well-known idiom that people use today. But Thomas's doubt and, and pessimism, it didn't start here. And if you'll rewind the game film of his life with me just a little bit and flip back a few chapters to John 11, we'll, we'll see the first detection. There in John 11, starting in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he said that he was glad that Lazarus was dead for the sake of the apostles so that they would believe. And Jesus purposely wanted to show the apostles that he had the power to raise the dead. So he delayed coming to see Lazarus for a couple of days so that he would die. And then Jesus could, of course, put his power on display. Well, right after Jesus shares this, we read this in John eleven sixteen. 16. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Well, why does Thomas say that? It seems a little unrelated to the the passage doesn 't it? What does this have to do with Lazarus dying or raising Lazarus from the dead? Well, by this time we've got to remember that the ministry of Jesus had progressed, and jesus 's notoriety and popularity had continued to grow, and there were a number of people that were out to seek and destroy and kill Christ. In fact, John stops telling us about jesus 's public ministry in John chapter 10 and the rest of his gospel it focuses on Jesus's private ministry and he wants us to know that right before Jesus was crucified the Jewish leaders were so hostile towards Jesus that he started preparing his disciples for his death it was dangerous for Jesus to be traveling especially around the area of Jerusalem where the hostility against him was the greatest. Jesus has been ministering for several months in the area of Perea, which is located east of the Jordan. But now he's going to go to Bethany, where this is Lazarus' hometown, two miles east of Jerusalem. And the disciples know that they're going to be in significantly greater danger. And by the way, any one of the disciples at this point in, in this gospel narrative they could have spoken up and said something, but it was Thomas. We have this record of his negative and pessimistic response. And he's basically saying, he's going to die and we're all going to die with him. That was the, the, the negativity that basically encapsulated his statement. And I think if we're all honest, we, we have our tendencies to doubt and to be pessimists at times, Right? Sin and doubt work hand in hand, and we see how the Lord used doubt regularly to anchor the faith of the twelve as He discipled them. They doubted that they weren't going to have enough food when, uh, when He performed the miracles uh, to feed the multitudes. They doubted that they were going to live when they were going through a storm on on a boat with the Lord. That they were going to suffer shipwreck. We're going to perish. We're going to die. It seems unfortunate that Thomas got branded with the nickname because, truth be told, they all doubted. And so do we. So do we. Yet time and time again, Jesus answered their doubts and helped them to walk by faith. And we see Christ do this firsthand with Thomas. If we go back to John 20, and I know I just went to 11. If you go back to to John 20 and see how the account of doubting Thomas ends, starting in verse 26, it says... After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they that did not see me and yet believed. Jesus provided the answer to Thomas's doubt. And the principle that we can take away from their interaction is that there's going to be times where we have doubts on this side of the cross. In fact, we may even come to the place of being negative, pessimistic. And the question you and I need to answer is not whether we're going to encounter doubt, but who are we going to turn to when we encounter it? And there are so many reasons to doubt. You're a single person here today. You may doubt whether you're ever going to get married. I know when I was single, I did. Right? Lord worked in my heart, reminded me of the reality that I needed to be who I needed to be before I had a stewardship of a godly wife as he prepared her. Maybe you're a married couple and you doubt whether or not you're going to have the ability to have children. Maybe maybe you're struggling in your, your current job and you have doubt Whether this is the career path that you're supposed to remain on, and whether it's going to be possible at this juncture in your life to actually make a change. Maybe the Lord has you in a trial and you're doubting what the outcome is going to be. I want to give you James 1 5 and 6. It says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Pray. Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any, what's your translation say? Mine says doubting. Trust him. Trust him, my friend. Trust him with whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is that is, is, is tempting you to doubt, that you would turn and that you would trust him and that you would pray to him and that you would ask him for wisdom to be shown so that you can have peace and, and, and contentment about where you're at and how he's working in your situation. Christ is... Is our anchor. And just like with Thomas, he's there to deal with all of our doubts. What would become of Thomas after his faith was anchored? He preached in Parthia, India, and Ethiopia, all before he was martyred in Kalamina, a city in the East Indies, where idolatrous natives opposed his preaching and threw him into a fiery furnace. When it became apparent that the fire and the heat was having no impact on his body, the natives were finally forced to stab him with spears in order to end his life. I love that. Like his faith was grown so much that he he was thrown into the fiery furnace and they had to just been like, and it's not doing anything to him. That's a picture. That's a reminder of, of God being in control, right? The sovereign, all powerful, omniscient God of the universe in control. And even, and let that be an encouragement to you, my friend, even when you think that your circumstances, there's, you come to the place, we're actually talking about this in men's, our CBC leadership training, he brings you to the Red Sea, and you can't go anywhere else, and you don't know where to turn to next. Turn to him and trust him. He can do whatever he wants to do to deliver you. Whatever he wants to do. Amen. 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 And which of these three men did you connect with the most today? Was it Nathaniel's prejudice? Or was it the plague of the sinful past like Matthew Levi? Maybe it was the pessimism and doubtfulness of Thomas. Or if you're like me, maybe it was a little bit of all three of them. And how will Christ's discipleship of you this week provide answers as you draw closer to him this week? Because he will provide answers. He will. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are blessed to see the foundation which has been laid by Christ for us in the ultimate expression of sacrifice. And he is the cornerstone of the church. And what a blessing to be at a church that actually bears that name, that should cause us to be mindful of that reality, that Christ is our cornerstone. That he has laid the foundation and that there are men who were discipled directly by him in person that eventually were led to lay down their lives and to give everything. You've called us to build our lives of sacrifice and service upon that foundation. And Father, I confess in my own heart that there are things in this world that draw me away that captivate my attention for way too long. That steal time, precious time, freeing time that we can have with you. I pray as a church family and it's fitting as we prepare to celebrate communion That we would just draw near to you at this time that we would confess any sin that's taking place in our lives currently that we would see the great sacrifice and the righteousness that you've imputed to our account that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel calling in our lives would you help us to pursue Christ likeness and holiness may we see that a life of self-denial is truly where freedom is where joy is where blessing is Help us to cut the cords of materialism. Help us to cut the cords of convenient Christianity that continue to attempt to hijack us and to entangle us, to ensnare us. As Hebrews 12 reminds us, let us lay aside those encumbrances. Let us be free from those things. So Father, we look forward to a special morning as you prepare our hearts to celebrate communion, we ask that as we sing this song now, that you would allow our hearts to be encouraged and that we would see you at work because you know where we're going and you know how we're growing. And we give you all the praise. It's by your grace and in your goodness that it's made possible in Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.